So I've tried to hide the title down in the left bottom corner. The word go is not an instruction for now. You're not allowed to just leave before I do this. Um, the timing of it is going to be slightly odd, which is a phrase designed to just strike terror into your hearts, as I've got the microphone at the moment. Um, by the time we actually hit today's passage in Acts, um, it's not that I've taken ages to do a five-minute introduction. That will be about halfway through, just, just so people aren't panicking and thinking, I do want to obey this right now. Just thinking back over what we've sung this morning. Holy, holy, holy. Early on. In royal robes, I don't deserve. And then, he bought the nations, ransomed souls, brought this sinner near to his throne. Every week, it's right that when we come together, and hopefully every day in our own lives when we have time with God, we remind ourselves that actually it did take the blood of Christ, it did take the cross to let us approach a holy God. But as we get into God's word today and we get to look at Acts 10, I'd actually like to approach things from a different angle because a lot of the early hearers of God's word, the early church, would actually have been amazed about us bridging a slightly different gap to that one. They'd have seen this as fundamental. So before we look at what Acts 10 says, to try to understand how seismic a shift it's actually talking about, let's have a look at the biblical background that the early church was steeped in and knew very, very well. So we're going to first of all have a look at God's word from one point of view. This isn't a whole story, but this is a lot of what the early church would have had in their minds. God blesses a nation. John Piper summarizes this entire section. It's almost inconceivable to Jews who were chosen of God, were given his law, were set apart as his chosen people, that he would also choose non-Jews, i.e. Gentiles, from different nations and bring them into a relationship with him quite apart from Judaism. Israel, we're told, is made holy. That literally means set apart, made separate, distinctive, different. So who is it that they're meant to be different to? Well, the Gentiles, the other nations. We're really early on in the Old Testament. We're at Genesis 12, and God calls Abraham. And he promises him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. God then confirms that covenant with Abraham several times. Famously, he commands that he institutes a physical sign of separation, of difference, in circumcision. God allows the descendants of Abraham to be taken into Egypt. And for 400 years, as slaves, he uses that time to turn them into a nation, a people who see that they are linked together and different to others. When God then calls Moses at the burning bush, he says to, the, uh, he says to him, I have seen the oppression of my people. God has chosen them. After God delivers them from slavery, brings them out of Egypt, he then gives them the law, 
And while we're in the law, he repeatedly makes it clear that they are meant to be separate. Look at the link between the two halves of these verses. So in Exodus, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, God chooses many times to tell the Israelites to eat literally a different diet to people around them. You are to be my holy people. So, what's coming up? What follows on from that? Because you're the holy people. So, do not eat the meat of animals torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. In the mundane, an item on the periphery, that's happening so that they are separate, so they are different to the other people. And when it comes to a really big kind of thing, life and death, those things that are meant to unite us all as human beings... We see in Deuteronomy, there's a command. You are the children of the Lord your God, speaking to this nation. So, do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Being chosen by God for the nation of Israel meant being different. After the law has been given and we get into the history books, then we're told again and again of the wars between Israel and the surrounding nations and of God warning the Israelites against mingling with others. And the topic of intermarriage and the fact that it's completely forbidden is particularly emphasized to ensure that they are not compromised by the other nations, that they are separate. It's often said that you can tell the foundational faults of a society by looking at the words of its songs. You have to go as far as Psalm 2 to see what the thrust of a lot of them is. The Israelites are regularly singing about why the nations conspire in vain. The kings of the earth are said to be conspiring against God, only for them to be rebuked by him. God says he's installed his king in Zion. And that king is going to break the nations as if he's a rod of iron. He'll break them to pieces like pottery. Do some of the Gentiles want to worship this God? Yes, they do, because they've seen his mighty works. And actually, they can come towards the temple. There is this thing called the call to the Gentiles. But they can't get any further in than that. The holiest part of the temple was the center. And as you get further away from that, the worshippers there are less and less privileged. The Gentiles don't actually get anywhere near the temple proper. They're right on the outside. And there are notices up saying, what's going to happen if these people dare approach God, try to get nearer him? The signs say they will be executed, literally killed for trying to do that. They cannot come any closer. And then finally... After this one nation has been blessed directly by God, has waited centuries for a Messiah to come along, a Jew is born who claims not just to be the Messiah, but to also be the Son of God. Of course, Jesus was Jewish. When he sends out his 12 Jewish disciples, he gives them the following instructions. 
do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And Jesus himself, when confronted by a Gentile woman, has this dialogue with her. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the Gentiles, and a reminder, that, that is most of us, were separate from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. John Piper summarizes it as the Jews thought they were included because they were Jewish. The Gentiles thought they were excluded because they were Gentiles. That is the mindset of a lot of people in the early church. Keep that worldview fresh in your minds, but actually let's go and look at the Bible from a different point of view because that is not the full story. Okay, Let's look at those bits of the biblical story again and see what the early church was actually missing if that's all that they thought God had said. Right back to the beginning in Genesis 12 again. Um, hopefully we've got uh, this passage up there. Now the Lord has said to Abraham, Go out from your country, from your family, and from your father's household. Go to the land that I will show you, so that I may make you a great nation, so that I may make your name great, and be a blessing, so that I may bless those who bless you. And the one who despises you I will curse. And all of the families of the earth will be blessed in you. So, Abraham went. Under a really clear command of go, three times Abraham is told what he's going from. And each time it gets harder, it gets more personal. First of all, he has to leave his country, then his extended family, but then he has to part from his father's house specifically. But there are those three consequences. And all these, they start off pretty big. God's going to create an entire nation from him. And it follows on pretty good for Abraham where names in that culture were so important, you know, he's going to establish this name for him, it's actually the third promise, which reverberates through the whole of history, because Abraham and Israel are going to be a blessing. They are blessed to be a blessing to all nations and all people. Notice the response at the end of this. Abraham went. He had to go to unleash that blessing. He had to obey God. In Galatians, Paul describes this passage by saying that God's actually just announced the gospel early to Abraham. We've seen that the law said that the Israelites have to be holy, that is, separated from other people by their actions and their thoughts. However, that doesn't mean that God called them to be physically separate and not be near, not talk to, not share lives 
with other people. In Numbers, they are told in the law that the community is to have the same rules for you and for the foreigner residing with you. You and the foreigner shall be the same before the Lord. People of other nations are meant to be welcomed in to the community of Israel and treated the same. In the Psalms, the people also sing that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. In the prophets, that role of blessing is spout out. God tells the nation of Israel, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And it also describes their success. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The Old Testament is clear that God also chooses people who aren't Jewish in words which that chosen nation found offensive. Isaiah 19, for instance. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, two of the fundamental enemies of Israel. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handwork, and Israel, my inheritance. That theme is repeated later, again in Isaiah, saying that his house, the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, rather than a place where other nations aren't welcome. The Sovereign Lord declares, I will gather still others besides those already gathered. Other prophets depict the same broader call of God to all nations. Hosea saying, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And Zechariah, many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. It's not always because Israel are being fantastic and blessing other people that others are attracted. Um, Sometimes it it works differently. Back in Deuteronomy, we hear that the Israelites' rejection of God in favor of idols is met with him choosing other nations to entice Israel back through jealousy. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding, is God's promise. So after seeing that the Old Testament repeatedly teaches that God will welcome other nations, let's look at the New Testament. While this might not have been written down by the time that Acts 10 actually happened, Jesus' acts and words were being taught and passed on through the early church. In Acts 10, we're going to meet a centurion. The first time Jesus encountered a centurion was in Matthew 10, when he was amazed by the man's faith. It surpassed that of any in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus 
told parables that did not go down well with the religious leaders and many of the people of that country. The parable of the tenants, for instance. God is represented by a landowner. He plants a vineyard, rents it out to a group of tenants, Israel, who then don't hand over his share of the fruit, but instead beat and kill his servants, the prophets, and eventually kill his son, Jesus, thinking that they all get to take over the vineyard. Jesus asks at the end of that story, what will the owner do? And answers that he will bring them to an end and rent the vineyard to other tenants. There's a similar theme in the parable of the wedding banquet. And when Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be good, that offends many. People don't like it when a people not like them. The down and outs, the despised, those who are normally unchosen are chosen instead. Jesus calls his followers to be salt of the whole earth, the light of the world. And then after his death, when giving the great commission to the early church, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, the first few chapters of Acts recorded them being faithful to the first quarter of that promise. Jerusalem really was witnessed to, and many every day were saved, and the word of God in Acts celebrates that fact. After the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution comes upon the church, and all but the apostles are scattered, it says, to Judea and to Samaria. It takes that to get them to engage with the next bit of the Great Commission. Actually, then, Philip starts preaching to the Samaritans. And they start turning to God. So Peter and John are sent out to investigate, to look into this. Because this doesn't sound right. Despite that Great Commission, this doesn't sound right. When they come to them and lay their hands on them, the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. Major turning points. Peter and John get this, and on the way back to Jerusalem, they preach in many more villages of the Samaritans, preaching the word of God to them. They've got that they need to go to that next group of people. You might think, therefore, it would be reasonably clear to the church at this point that they've got to do that kind of last quarter. They've got to go and preach to the ends of the earth. They've got to go and preach to the Gentiles. You'd think it's kind of all the way through the Bible, but let's look at Acts and see what happens. So we've got Cornelius, a Gentile centurion, a Roman, described though as devout and God-fearing. He prays three times a day. He sees a vision while he's praying. It's an angel of the Lord whose message Cornelius obeys. He sends three men to go to fetch Simon Peter who is staying at the house of Simon, a tanner in Joppa. But at the same time, Peter, a couple of days' walk away, is praying on the roof of a house and also has a vision. This vision is repeated three times, hopefully coming up on um, a slide. He saw heaven opened, 
and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, reptiles and birds, and a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Peter then hears the Spirit saying that three men have come for him and that he should go with them. When they arrive and he hears of Cornelius' vision, he invites the men into his house, into the house to be his guests, and he then travels with them back to Cornelius, who has gathered all his friends and family in the few days that have gone past. After having to tell Cornelius to get off the floor because he's trying to worship him, Peter says, you are well aware that it is against our law to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, the vision Peter has had was not primarily about food laws. It's about people. God actually has to use a supernatural vision to break through Peter's traditional Jewish upbringing. Because he saw the first half of those Bible verses I went through earlier, not so much the second half. Peter gets that God is interested in the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So continues and preaches to them, describing the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, and the many witnesses to those events. During this evangelistic sermon, the world changes. Hopefully this is coming up as well. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So we ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Even Peter now, the man that God is using to start the ministry to the Gentiles describes this in a surprised and almost negative way. Surely no one can stand in the way rather than I want to get involved in this. Next chapter, we see that Peter is criticised for eating with those Gentiles when he gets back to Jerusalem. When those circumcised believers hear the whole story and accept it, which they do, even then they exclaim, even to the Gentiles... God has granted repentance. This decisive turn of events leads in a few chapters' time to the Council of Jerusalem because some are teaching that the Gentiles have to convert to being Jews first before they can be accepted by God. 
The council decides not to make things difficult for the Gentiles. But then we hear from Paul's writings that a few years after that, Peter himself goes back and Paul has to confront him and call him a hypocrite. Why is this so difficult? We've seen that some bits of the Bible do emphasize God's choosing of Israel to be a model to the rest of the world, to be blessed in front of the rest of the world. And God has a desire for them to be holy, to keep themselves distinct, so they are this visible marker of God's grace. But we've also seen this clear teaching that actually they are meant to draw the rest of the world towards God by this example. That the blessing they've got is meant to translate to a blessing to others. Peter has actually just fulfilled that promise to Abraham. Peter, a Jew, blessed to be a blessing to the Gentile centurion. Why did the early church have so much difficulty seeing both sides of this? Actually, as we went through transformed life a few weeks ago and looked at the first half of Ephesians, we actually saw the answer. Quick reminder, um, a bit of Ephesians is coming up here. The mystery of Christ was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. It seems right to actually finish a summary of the entire Bible, having gone through so much of it already. Um, So in Revelation, we also see the glorious end of God's plan. The rest of Acts is about to lay out the missional thrust of the church, as its people realize that God does command them to go to the ends of the earth. But here's the result, which we know, lovely spoiler from God here, a mystery he's revealed, which one day will come to pass. After this I looked, and there before me a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing those white robes that we sang about earlier on. I think there are three applications that I want to bring out from this. Earlier on, we saw this verse describing our situation separate from the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Now, that section of Ephesians we just looked at says that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is what's made the difference. That's true because his death doesn't just provide a way for one race of people to be reconciled to a holy God, but because Jews and Gentiles are united in Christ. We are heirs together, members and sharers together because of the cross. True indeed are those words we read from Hosea. 
I will call them my people who are not my people. I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. So I think our first application is to go ahead and praise because of what God has done for us. The battle and the war were won decisively at the cross, but skirmishes continue today as we wait for Jesus one day to come again and demonstrate his power and his victory. What happened here in Acts 10 at Caesarea was not the decisive turning point in the war that had happened at the cross and the resurrection, but it was still a momentous event in God's plan for the world. And I really want to grasp that. It resulted in the church beginning to fulfill that last part of the Great Commission by going to all nations, to the ends of the earth, including to here including to wherever you first heard the good news, to wherever you were when you were saved. Thank you, God, for that. Linked to that point, I want to reflect a bit more on that theme of even to the Gentiles. This is just another way to try to grasp the grace of God. The Gentiles... That's us, were seen as polluting, unclean. We were described as dogs. Are they even fit to get the leftovers? Israel was chosen by God, and God was faithful to Israel even when they repeatedly turned their backs on him. Hosea actually married an unfaithful prostitute who spurned his love and the second chances he repeatedly gave her. And God asked Hosea to do that, to be a visible representation of God's love for Israel and her rejection of him. They needed a Messiah. They needed a God to turn their hearts of stone that kept making them muck it up into hearts of flesh. And this chosen nation needed God to write his law on their hearts. And we were described as being in a worse state than that. We had no hope, no covenant. We were strangers. Now, those first-class citizens weren't worthy of salvation. It's only God's grace that can bridge the gap for them. But God has also offered redemption and even an inheritance for the second-class citizens, you and me. The Jewish Christians were surprised that God would stoop down so low as to go to the Gentiles, forgetting that they were low down enough that they couldn't climb up to the holiness of God themselves, but needed him to descend to help them. I say, I sing regularly that I was without hope that God's grace was the only thing that could have saved me. 
And therefore, I think I'm being humble. I think it's useful for me to be confronted with the fact that a nation was chosen and I wasn't in it. To say that God actually came close to them even before the cross. To say that God blessed them first so that I could be blessed afterwards. It's true, if you're, if you're responding in your hearts, it's true to say that no one, Jew or Gentile, was truly God, good in the sight of God. And that everyone needs the cross to be saved. But I find, for me, that that response comes out, but there is a hint of, well, that means they weren't really better than me then. Maybe there's a touch that I am a bit bothered about what my place was in the rankings, even though, the, even though I speak out that, that there's no way I could get up there, I still seem to be bothered by this. I think I haven't fully understood undeserved grace. I wonder how many of us really, really have. God didn't redeem the best. He went to the worst. He takes those who don't deserve it. He chooses the ones that society thinks are beyond the pale. He goes to the groups that offend us. Who is that for you? Which group of people offend you by their actions? What crimes do you think are the worst? What things would you describe as unforgivable if you hadn't got your Christian vocabulary just right? Because Jesus came for their sake. God chooses them. I need that thought to really penetrate my heart as well as my head. I need that truth to direct my actions and my life. Because if God truly goes to those utterly shameful, completely sinful wholly despised people, if he rescues those who don't deserve a rescue at all, then there's hope for me. That explains why he came for me. And I should have been saying, when thinking about who the worst are, I need to say, Jesus came for our sake. God chooses even us. Because when I grasp how offensive my sin and how necessary God's grace is for me. When I get it here as well as here, then out of sheer joy, I will be willing to take Christ's message to all. All in society, not just some, not just the ones I'm comfortable with. It's got to come out of that overflow. And lastly, I don't think we can or should ignore the main point of Acts 10, which is the church starting to fulfill the last bit of the Great Commission. It took persecution to scatter the church 
through Judea and Samaria, leading to the conversion of the Samaritans, shocking the Jewish Christians. And it takes these supernatural visions we've seen today to actually get the church to start reaching out to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And if they hadn't done that, we wouldn't have heard the gospel. Sit down, young man. When God pleases to convert the heathens, he'd do it without consulting you or me. 250 years ago, that was the response of a senior Baptist minister to William Carey's suggestion that the Great Commission still applies today, as well as to the apostles. We believe differently today, or at least our words say we do. The book on world mission, in which I looked up the quote to get it right, follows on by saying, few of us might speak in quite the same way as Dr. Ryland. We may, pour, we may pay more lip service, but not necessarily more real service to reaching the billions of people who have not yet heard that Jesus saves. This isn't an optional extra. It's Jesus' command to the church. As we saw with Abraham, it's always been God's command to go.